So if you haven't, uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we are going to be looking at chapter, verses 1 through 11. And I want to acknowledge my inclusion in an elite society full of people with emotional depth, brilliant insight, and a keen sense of story. This society recognizes that Batman is the greatest superhero of all time. Come at me, Superman fans, Spider-Man fans, Iron Man fans. You're wrong, haters. Batman is the greatest superhero of all time. And so within the greatness of Batman society, or gobs, as I like to call it, there are some essential beliefs, but there are also things that we, we kind of disagree about, we, we can argue about. So those that belong to gobs, we, we, we can argue about what is the greatest Batman comic story arc. I'm, I'm really torn between Batman Year One and The Long Halloween, but it's debatable. We also love to debate who is the greatest Batman uh, in the movies. And again, a little bit of a toss-up for me between Michael Keaton and Christian Bale. If you love George Clooney, I'm sorry, we may have to kick you out. But hey, there is room for debate within gobs about certain things. However, what is not up for debate is that Batman is the greatest superhero of all time. He's got the best origin story. The fact that he relies on training and intelligence and great gear rather than superhero, superhuman strength makes him the best hero. His, his origin story, bar none, is better than any other superhero. If you don't agree, you're not part of the society. I'm sorry. You cannot debate that. It is essential for you to agree with that. If you change your mind, we will lovingly throw you out. There are certain truths that have to be held on to to be part of this particular society. And within the church, look, we recognize that there are a number of issues that followers of Jesus disagree on. And in many ways, that is okay as long as it's not divisive. Now, I'm not saying division is good, but there is freedom to disagree on certain issues. And, and if I can go on just a little bit of a tangent here for City and, and encourage you all in some ways. We just engaged three of the most divisive chapters in Scripture, at least divisive within the church. And we engaged them fully. We, we didn't skip over them. We didn't go, oh, those things don't matter. No, we looked at them. We staked out a position and said, hey, this is what we believe as a church. And I know that not everybody agreed with that position for one reason or another. And here's what's beautiful. We came out on the other side, and y'all are still here. <laughs> like, like, there's unity in the church. We weren't divided. We are actually strengthened. And I know for some of you, you may be still wrestling through some things. And there, there's still maybe some questions, and hey, there's plenty of space. Take all the time you need to wrestle through those things. There's no rush here. But it's a beautiful testament to the power of the Spirit that we could walk through something that can, has traditionally been divisive, and here we are unified, and not just unified around a particular theological topic, but unified in our love for one another, Unified in our belief that, hey, at the heart of spiritual gifts is this desire to edify the church and build up the church and love one another. And so I just want to praise God for his faithfulness to us and the power of the Spirit in all y'all's life and the humility that you showed. That's something to celebrate. And that shows that as Christians, we can disagree. 
However, however, there are certain truths that we cannot compromise on. That there are certain truths that are absolutely essential and non-negotiable. Things that if we turn our back on, if we try to distort and dismiss, calls into question our place in the Christian faith. There are truths that are so important that if we mess up on them, meaning that if we willfully try to distort them and say they're no longer true, then we have to ask ourselves, are we truly in the faith? And Paul lays that out for us this morning. He talks about what is of first importance, as he says in verse 3. And those truths are this, the death and resurrection of Christ. We can disagree about tongues and prophecy. We can disagree about baptism. We can disagree about end times. Hey, we can even disagree and go so far as to debate whether only men can be pastors or not. But we cannot compromise on this, the death and resurrection of Christ. If you distort and dismiss the death and resurrection of Christ, you distort and dismiss the gospel. If we mess with the death and resurrection of Christ, we are in danger of putting ourselves outside the Christian faith. This is why Paul spills so much ink declaring the truth and the necessity, the power and the beauty of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15. And this chapter is a bit like Romans 8. It's sort of a a, a book unto itself. It's a sermon series unto itself. And and we're not going to preach a sermon series just on 1 Corinthians 15, but we are going to spend the next month just in this chapter. And I think it's fitting as we enter into the Easter season that we spend an extended time reflecting on the truth of the resurrection of Christ and the promise of resurrection for those who are in Christ. And so I'm excited about this next month as we spend some time reflecting and diving into the resurrection because it is of the most importance to our faith. And so to borrow some language from the great reformer Martin Luther, here's the title of my message this morning. Here we stand. Here we stand. And this is the central truth that this passage calls us to stand on, that we believe and proclaim the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. We believe and proclaim the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this is our hope, church, as we're going to see. I mean, this is everything. This is the truth that unites us, yes, but it is also the truth that transforms us. It's not just intellectual exercise. It's not just asserting some historical reality that happened in the past. No, this is the the power and the life that we have right now, church. And so my prayer is, is that God, through his word and his spirit, would shape our hearts and root us and ground us in the truth that we stand on. So let's first ask this question. What does the resurrection have to do with anything else in 1 Corinthians? And when we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul starts writing about the resurrection, what does that have to do with spiritual gifts, meat sacrifice to idols, church discipline, sexual ethics, wisdom? What does it have to do with all the other things that the Apostle Paul has written about in this letter that we have seen over the past year? Well, it could be very easy to think Paul is just sort of randomly throwing in this theological issue right here towards the end of the letter, but it is very much connected to everything else that has come before. And so if we consider the heart posture of the Corinthians, 
What are some of the problems that Paul has been addressing throughout this letter? We see that the Corinthians sought wisdom in knowledge that brought power and status and standing. And so they thought spiritual maturity through theological knowledge, or whether it was uh, flaunting freedom in Christ and saying, hey, look how much more freedom I have because I know more than you, or whether it was the flashy spiritual gifts that they wanted to show off. They sought status and power and standing in the church through those things. They were after glory for themselves rather than the humility and sacrifice reflected in the gospel. And the fact that they were chasing after power and status meant they wanted glory now. Like they thought that that Christianity and the wisdom and the sort of the spirituality that was within Christianity could give them a kind of glory right now here in this life. And if you're chasing glory now, why do you need the resurrection? Why would you care about the resurrection? If this life offers you glory, if you can get power and status here, I don't need the resurrection. Why should I care about whether or not Jesus was resurrected from the grave? Also, it's likely that the Corinthians were being influenced by a kind of hyper-spirituality that saw the spiritual as important and the physical as less important. We saw this Um, Several chapters ago, when they were indulging their their desires for food and for sexual gratification, because they had this understanding that, hey, the body, once I die, the body's just going to pass away. What will last is spirit, so I can do whatever I want with my body, because it's not going to last. It doesn't matter. And again, if the resurrection, if, if the body is going to just pass away and all that matters is spirit, why would I need the resurrection? Why would I care about Christ being resurrected bodily? And so if, you, if we sort of trace the themes that have been a problem for the Corinthians throughout this letter, well, we can recognize how that mindset would cause them to downplay and dismiss and be susceptible to those beliefs that would remove the resurrection of Christ from the equation. Now, we're not sure how many in the church were, were given over to this, but it was enough of a problem that Paul had to address it and will address it in this part of his letter. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to confront is that these issues, such as pride, selfishness, sexual immorality, lack of taking responsibility to discipline those who were caught in sin, the kind of selfishness that would lead to abusing other brothers and sisters with their freedom or showing off with their gifts, all of that is important and all of that matters. And Paul was addressing that, but here at the end, He says, as important as those things are, if all that pride, all those beliefs cause you to doubt and distort the resurrection, now we've stepped into a whole other arena. As dangerous as those other things are, now you've really crossed the line here because you're cutting to the heart of the gospel. And so he's going to address them in chapter 15. In verses 1 through 11, what Paul wants to do is remind them, hey, this is what you believed. Remember what I proclaimed to you and remember what you believed. Here's what he writes in verses 1 and 2. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so he's saying, Corinthians, your pride, your divisions, your fights, the sin, It appears that it is causing you to lose sight of the gospel that I proclaim to you. 
The gospel that you believed and you received, that you, you said, yes, we, we believe this, we embrace this. this, this is the truth that we believe. And the, the gospel that you took your stand on, the gospel that you were saying, hey, this is, what I, this is what defines our identity now. These are the truths that we live for. And the gospel that is saving you, that has saved you, the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that the sins are forgiven, you have right standing with God, and the gospel that is saving you, transformation and renewal through the power of the Spirit, that gospel that I proclaim to you, it would be a tragedy if you distorted and dismissed and turned your back on it. It would be a tragedy if all that belief that you proclaimed was empty and meaningless. And so he's going to remind them, let me remind you, what I proclaim to you. Let me remind you what you claimed you believe. And so he writes, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. What Paul declared to the Corinthians, his most important declaration that rang from his lips and spilled from his pen, the declaration that is echoed through the ages is this, that Christ died for sinners according to the scriptures, but that he was resurrected, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's saying, listen, this is what you believed. Not a no resurrection Christ, but a resurrected Christ. This is what you took hold of. This is what saved you. It wasn't a no-resurrection gospel that saved you. It's a resurrection gospel that saved you. Let me remind you what it is that you actually believe and stand on. Don't fall into a distorted view of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, all according to the scriptures, which is Paul's Shorthand way of saying this, that all the history, the teaching, the poetry and prophecy in the Old Testament ultimately points to the death and resurrection of Christ, just as Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 24. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. This is the gospel that we proclaimed. The gospel that has been saving for over 2,000 years is a gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. And now Paul goes to great lengths here to emphasize the resurrection. And, and so he points to person after person after person that saw the resurrected Christ. And so he starts with Cephas or Peter. And why would this matter? Well, if you remember back in chapter one, one of the cliques that had formed in the church in Corinth was around, well, I follow Peter. And so Paul's sort of dropping this, hey, your boy Peter, he saw Jesus resurrected. And then he also points out James and the other apostles. They saw him, other people that you respect. They saw Jesus resurrected. And not only them, over 500 other brothers and sisters. Some of them have died, but some of them are still alive, which means you can write to them. You can go travel and see them, and you can ask them, hey, did you see the resurrected Christ? And they'll tell you, yes. Paul is sticking this very much in history. This is a concrete historical reality. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't just some sort of mythological, spiritual resurrection, meaning Jesus was resurrected as this great idea. No, he was bodily, historically resurrected. And Paul is staking his entire reputation on this. 
And he's reminding the Corinthians, hey, to distort and to dismiss the gospel and the resurrection is to miss out on the fact that there's a whole rack of people that have seen him. (laughs) And either they're all lying or you need to return to the message that you received. And so Paul is staking the validity of the gospel, the validity of Christ in in historical reality to make this point. There is no gospel. There is no salvation. There is no hope without a bodily resurrection of Jesus. This, friends, is the gospel we stand on. This is the gospel we proclaim and we believe, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the question for you and me. Have we received by faith? Do we believe, do we put our hope in the death and resurrection of Christ? Are these the truths on which we take our stand? Are these the truths that have saved you and are saving you? Is this real to you, in other words? Is this more than just a theological doctrine and an intellectual idea? Is this reality to you? Have you experienced truly the power of the death and resurrection in your life? And listen, it's so easy to doubt this. Like it was easy for the Corinthians to minimize the death, the death, or excuse me, the resurrection of Christ, and they were alive during the time that people who saw the resurrection happen were walking around. They could verify, they could go talk to these people. And even then, they struggled with this, they doubted. How much more for us over 2,000 years later? where we can't go and talk to people who have seen the resurrected Christ. And so we also struggle. We also, there are also objections. And we recognize the objections. I'm sure you've heard them, or maybe you even have some of these. That the resurrection is not scientifically verifiable, or that it goes against the laws of nature, or that it was invented myth with no historical verification outside the Bible. And on and on and on we could go. And look, some of those questions, hey, they're worthy questions. They're questions worth exploring, questions worth asking. And what's so great is that for over 2,000 years, the church has been addressing them. And there are wonderful resources you can go and read and get your hands on that address some of these objections. And so I want to, for those of you that are believers in the room, I want to just encourage you. Like, look, the objections that have been thrown to the resurrection of Christ, and no matter the article that that will say new objections, new proof that Jesus wasn't resurrected, or the videos on YouTube with the latest and greatest sort of undermining the Christian faith, guess what? 99.9% of the time, that person is just rehashing an old argument. Like, I guarantee you, at least Thomas Aquinas anticipated that argument. That's just one guy in history. Now, this is not to say that there aren't real objections and objections that deserve serious answers. I'm just telling you that the church has provided those answers for 2,000 years and they've done a really good job. You can get your hands on these resources. You can be strengthened in your faith. Don't believe the lie that someone has come across this latest and greatest objection and it's just gonna dismantle the Christian faith that we've never heard it before, no one's ever thought about it before. No, God has gifted his church well 
And there have been people who've been able to enter into those questions and offer wonderful explanations. And so I'd encourage you, if you have these questions, if you're having conversations with people, chase after these resources. They're there for you. But even more, even more, much like the Corinthians, our doubts and our dismissals are less about intellectual issues and more about heart issues. Like, so often underneath the intellectual, there are issues of the heart. The intellectual is often a smokescreen for what's going on in the heart. So, so again, questions are good. Raising questions about the resurrection, which is something supernatural, is great and wonderful. But recognize that's not all that's going on. And oftentimes, that's not the deepest thing going on, the most important thing going on in those objections. Often, what presents itself as intellectual is actually more tied to your heart. And you need to be honest about that. You need to be honest that your objections are not necessarily about scientific plausibility and historical accuracy, but issues of whether or not you're willing to submit to a God and submit to his authority and to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Because here's what we recognize. That the Bible is not just making claims of intellectual nature. It is making claims on our lives. I had a friend once, a non-Christian friend once, and we, were, we would go on and on and round and round about the, uh, the validity of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible. And one time I asked him, I said, hey, if I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is 100% without error, would you give your life to Christ? And he looked at me, and I appreciated his honesty. He said, I don't know, probably not. But because in that moment, he recognized this was more than just an intellectual exercise. To acknowledge the truth of the Bible was to acknowledge the Bible called him to certain things. There were certain truths that his life, he would have to submit his life to. And we need to be honest about the ways that the Bible rubs up against our hearts and calls us to things that we don't want to submit to. Because friends, believing the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ isn't just a matter of reordering your intellectual framework. If Jesus truly was crucified for sin and he was resurrected on the third day, that doesn't just reorder your intellectual framework, that reorders reality. Everything about reality changes and calls us to submit our life to. But we buck against this, don't we? Man, we buck against this. I mean, if Jesus was crucified for sin, not because he was a political revolutionary or a martyr of a marginalized people group, but he was crucified because of sin and for sin, that says something about us. It says something about us in our relationship to God. It says something about our sin and our need for salvation, that we can't save ourselves, that we are in utter rebellion against a holy God, and we need to be redeemed. We need to, our sin needs to be atoned for. But we don't like that story, do we? Too often we don't. We would much rather blame our problems on psychological ailments, mental unwellness, poor socialization, maybe bigotry and hatred born of ignorance and fear and superstition. Hey, all these things are real to be sure, but they're symptoms of a far deeper problem. And that deeper problem, we don't want to touch far too often. We don't want to acknowledge. We don't want to go there. And so it is far easier to downplay, dismiss, or reinterpret Christ's death 
than it is to be honest about our sin and our rebellion and our need for redemption. Uh, like, here, here's, here, here's where we are in our current society and all of our, our ability to, to sort of explain our ailments and our problems and all of our attempts. We're like people drowning in the ocean. In our sin, we are people drowning in the ocean. And all our culture has managed to do is, man, we're really good at describing the water and really good about being in denial. Like, like, like that's all of our sophistication, all our explanations. That, that's what it amounts to. We're drowning and we're describing water and we're in denial. That's what happens when our hearts push against push against the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ. Further, if Jesus was resurrected from the grave, new life brought forth from death, that says something too. It says that what is broken, wrecked, and ruined in this world cannot be fixed through more education, politics, and money. Look, college degrees, capitalism, and democracy are not going to fix what's broken in this world. More science and more technology are not going to fix what is broken in this world. We are powerless to fix what is broken in us, in our world. We need something far more than moral, political, and economic reform. We need resurrection. We need new life. We need the power of the gospel in our lives. But again, that's certainly not the story we want to tell ourselves. We don't want to get off the throne and get humble. We want the glories and pleasures of this life. We want the status and power of this life. We want the promise of success in this life. We want to believe that with more education, with more money, with more opportunity, with just the right system, we can fix and make this better. We don't want to acknowledge that we need something completely outside of ourselves, something that is, we are entirely powerless to affect and make happen. But that is the hope of the gospel. But it is far easier to throw up intellectual objections to the resurrection of Christ than it is to come in humility that we may die to the old and be resurrected to the new. So let me ask again, do you believe? Have you put your hope in the death and resurrection of Christ? Is it the power by which you are being saved? Is this the power in which you have thrown all your life and all your hope on? Uh, look, if the answer is yes, praise God. But then let me also ask this. Is the death and resurrection of Christ the thing on which you are standing and remain standing? Is this the, the power and the hope that affects and shapes your daily life? Is the death and resurrection of Christ of first importance? Are you abiding in it? trusting in it, depending upon it, being transformed by these truths day by day? Are you daily drinking in from the provision of Christ's work on the cross, walking in humility and confession of sin? Or are you minimizing sin? Are you bringing sin into the light because there's incredible grace through the cross of Christ? Or are you pretending and performing, acting like, hey, I got this. No problems here. I'm perfectly fine. Or I just need a little bit of improvement and I'll be good. Rather than recognizing you absolutely need humility and repentance and absolute dependence on the cross of Christ. Do you see your problems as merely psychological, emotional, and social? Or do you recognize they go so far down deep into the core of who you are that apart from Christ, there is no hope? Uh, 
And do you recognize that you need forgiveness, you need freedom, and no amount of effort on your part is powerless to set you free from that sin, that rebellion, that enslavement? Friends, do you recognize and is your daily hope amidst the pain and trials and struggles and suffering and sickness, the resurrection of Christ? Like as you go through the hardships of life, because we all face them, as you walk through the trials and the challenges in your marriages and in your jobs and in your parenting and just in the normal aspects of life, as you face down the physical ailments that afflict your body, is your hope day after day after day, the resurrection of Christ and his victory over evil and suffering and death, is your hope the promise of resurrection life through him? Or are you white-knuckling it, grinding it out on your own, or maybe giving over to despair and saying, "Why? what's the difference? Is the resurrection your power and your hope? Does the fact that Jesus rose from the grave give you hope in each and every day? Like, look, I know some days are, it's really hard to get out of bed. I know. But what would it mean if even each and every day, no matter how hard and painful it is, we'd be reminded, Jesus got out of the grave. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is alive. Like, does that truth overtake the sadness and the despair and the pain? Not remove them, not in denial of them, but a shining light that says, hey, there's hope, hope for today. You can get out of bed. You can live with hope. You can live in power. You can live in victory because Jesus got out of the grave. Jesus is alive. Friends, that's why we stand on the gospel. That's why we do not compromise on the gospel because without the resurrection of Christ, none of this matters. We're wasting our time. Gathering here on Sunday is stupid and foolish. But if Jesus got out of the grave, this makes all the sense in the world. This means that no matter your suffering, no matter your pain, no matter the hardship, no matter the sin you feel caught in, there's victory, there is hope for you. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. This is why Paul was so fired up and we should be so fired up. This is why we stand and we will not compromise. Not because we're prideful. Not because we want to prove everybody else wrong, but because Jesus is truly the resurrected and reigning king, and that's the only hope any of us have. And so we stand on that hope. We stand on these truths. And by the grace of God, the power of the gospel transforms us. And this is Paul's point in verses 8 through 11. I mean, Paul recounts his own experience of the resurrected resurrected Christ. He says that after appearing to Peter and the 500 and James and the other apostles, Paul says, he lastly appeared to me. And notice what he calls himself in verse 8, one born at the wrong time. Now, the English here doesn't quite get across the strength of the Greek. This literally means one who was miscarried or aborted. Paul saw himself as born as a dead man, like, like, that's how he saw himself apart from Christ. Absolutely and utterly dead. Paul was very aware of his life before Christ. As he'll go on here to explain, he, he was very aware that he was one who persecuted the church. 
He was given over to anger and pride and religious bigotry and wickedness in his heart. He persecuted, he hated the people of God. He hated Jesus at one time. So much so that he was responsible for the imprisonment and death of Christians. So he carried the sense, hey, I'm unworthy to be called apostle. Nothing in my past, nothing that I ever did warrants this call on my life. But did Paul wallow in that? No. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, yeah, this was my past, but his grace was not in vain to me. It came to me and it transformed me, me, the chief of sinners, the one who hated Christ and hated his people, the one who went so far as to kill them. Now, the greatest missionary, he outworked every other apostle. Is Paul bragging here? No, he's pointing to the power of the grace of God in his life. He went from someone who hated the church to being the church's greatest missionary. One who killed Christians to discipling and bringing forth Christians through his ministry. One who wanted to wipe the church from the face of the earth to one who wanted to give his life to build the church. That's the power of the grace of God. That's what the gospel does to people. It transforms them utterly and completely transforms them. And Paul was so aware of this in his own life, he wasn't going to allow the Corinthians to miss the power of the gospel. He was going to say, no way. I love you too much. I care too much. Not going to let the distortion happen. Not going to let you miss the necessity that we believe and proclaim a Christ who is bodily resurrected. And so Paul points to his own story as a way to point to the grace of God and the power in God in people's life. And so, for those of you in this room this morning, like, look, if you have never experienced the power of the gospel in your life, like, if you're here this morning and you have never come to this place where you've turned from your sin and you turn to Christ and experienced the forgiveness and freedom that are, are in him, here's the good news for you this morning. That can happen right here today right here this morning. You can turn from your sin and turn to Christ and be forgiven for all the sin. I don't care how dark it is. I don't care how dark your life is right now. The grace of Christ is greater than all sin. He will reach into the darkest pit and save you and set you free. You can experience that grace this morning. For those of you that have put your faith in Christ, those of you that have turned from sin and turned to Jesus, but maybe the death and resurrection of Christ have shrunk in your life. The, the power of the gospel just seems minimal in your life. Oh, let this reminder refresh you in your faith. Let this reminder encourage you that Jesus died for your sin. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day in victory and in power. And that power, that same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and is transforming you. And you can walk in that power and that hope. Well, whatever it is that's dragging you down, whatever it is that's weighing you down, whatever it is that, that feels so heavy, oh, you can bring that to the grace of Jesus and his resurrection power. He will love you. He will carry you. And he will work in your life to set you free. There's great hope for us here, church. There's great hope for us. This is why we stand on this. This is why we don't move off the line. This is why we don't compromise. 
because of the power of the gospel and the glorious truth that Jesus has been resurrected. And this is also why we give our lives to proclaim this message. This isn't something we keep to ourselves. This isn't something just for us. This is something for the world. And so let the glorious truth of the gospel that has transformed us compel us to go and proclaim the gospel to others. Let us hold the line for them and proclaim a Savior crucified but resurrected because there's no other power to save them, no other message that will save them. We don't distort this because to distort it is to hold out a false hope, and we don't want to do that for anyone. We want to give them the true hope of Jesus Christ. And so let's proclaim this gospel undiluted, undistorted, truly, fully, the gospel of first importance, that Christ was crucified for sin. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day. Amen? Let's pray.